All right, if you're new to Element, welcome. There are seat backs, uh, seat back, there are seat backs in front of you. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't have one, you can use one. Uh, if you forgot one, you can use one. We'd love for you to have one. If you don't own one, just take it home with you. If it rains, I say this a lot, don't pull it out and then cover your head with it because it is not the greatest paper in the world. It will go and be about this big. Maybe you want a big Bible, and it started this big. Anyway, you can you just, just take one if you want one. We'd love for you to have it. Uh, if you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. Uh, we will come up by GPS in your smart device. You will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. We also have paper sermon notes. Uh, they are on the communion tables throughout the room. On the upper left-hand side, my left, you're going to get uh, the verses we're covering. You get a place to write notes underneath that. Four simple questions. On the back, you get a little recap of what we talk about today. I think that's about all I got. I don't know. All right. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? I'm sorry. This is, this is my fault, sound guy. I didn't do this correctly, and I'm not going to try and... Is that better? Yeah, all right, you're welcome. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and it says, There was a certain man of Ramathane Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, and Hannah had no children. And we used to say her name Hannah, but that's how it's probably, it's Hannah, but I'm not going to do that because I just been on you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning, we thank you for your goodness and your grace, the things that you revealed to us in the scriptures. And I ask that as we walk through these things, we would learn, we would grow, we would know who you are better and who you call us to be as a people. And so I ask that as we look at the things that Hannah goes through in her life that would steer us directly towards you, where our hearts and our lives would be laid bare before you as you build us into the people you call us to be. Amen. Have a seat. So as I said, this is the last week of the Not So Little Women series, and we're looking at different stories of different women in the Bible, of what we can learn, how we can grow, uh, how they lived in relationship with God himself. And today's going to be different because I originally wrote this message like a year and a half ago. A year and a half ago, we did this series on prayer. And in the midst of that series, it got a little bit long, and so I took this one because I was thinking about doing a series called Not So Little Women. I pulled this one out of it, and I placed it in the not-so-little women series. So I thought, oh, it's going to go great there. Then the not-so-little women series got a little bit long, and it ends up where I could have just moved Hannah somewhere else, but I am not going to do that to Hannah because these are things that happened to her in her life. This woman, Peninnah, really kind of just goes after Hannah. I don't want to be that guy, so I put her here, first one of the new year, and that's why we're kind of ending with her. But what you're going to see as we talk through Hannah's life, you're going to see how it relates to prayer because it was originally part of that prayer series, but also all the things I think that we can learn. Now, our culture today seems very positive about prayer. I have even had an atheist and heard one say, hey, uh, you're in my prayers. I don't know what that means for, for them. But uh, many people today say they are spiritual, even though they're not religious. And this is why Hannah is really good for us to look at, because her view of what is spiritual is going to move from being self-centered to being God-centered. And you'll see that through the pain that she goes through in her life. So you'll see her pain. You're going to see the change of that. And that's going to result in two different prayers. Half the message, we're going to talk about her background. The other half, we're going to talk about those two prayers and what we can learn. If you have a Bible, open to 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles at Element, that is on page 145. 
And the verse I had you stand for, you see Hannah's pain because she's barren. She has no children, but that is not the worst of it. First Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So not only is she barren, but she's picked on because of it. When it says she wept bitterly, that means a bitterness of soul. The Hebrew word for that means she wails loudly. In verse 6, Peninnah rubs Hannah's nose in her condition. It says she provoked, she irritated her. And that word means to roar with anger. And so in the text, you don't really see it when you read it, but there's a lot of noise taking place in this text. And why is she angry? Because she wants to have a child and she can't. Now, you might hear this and think, I totally relate to that. I tried to, my wife and I tried to have children for 15 years and, and we couldn't. And there is a way you can relate in that, but we don't fully relate to everything that Hannah is going through. So I'm not trying to belittle your pain in saying that. There's just a lot more that goes on in this culture. In the Israelite culture, in these ancient societies, your family's economic status was directly tied to how many children you had. It didn't matter if you're a farmer, a baker, a garbage man, a lawyer, a teacher, the more children you had, the larger your labor force was because everything is done through families. The more labor force you had, the more kids you had, the more production you had, the better your whole family dynamic was taken care of. Simple as that. More children, more money, higher economic status, higher social status. Fewer children, less of everything as well. Now, I know today it's the exact opposite, right? The more kids you have, the poorer <laughs> you end up being. Now, during that time, only about four in 10 children made it to adulthood, meaning four in 10 survived. And there's no such thing as social security or retirement benefits or anything like that, which means you would literally starve if you did not have a lot of children. Having a lot of children was the key to future security. If your tribe, if your nation had a lower birth rate and another tribe or another nation had a higher birth rate, what would happen? Bigger army? smaller army, you lose. They come in, they destroy you or subjugate you or just simply take everything you have. So lots and lots of children was a matter of life and death, which led to seeing women who had lots and lots of children as heroes. They are the ones who are blessed by God. They are the patriots and they would have lots of children. The societies would see them as the heroes of their family and their culture both. And so when you see someone in this culture in that day say they want to have children, it is not simply about family fulfillment or emotional fulfillment. If you don't have enough kids, it's seen as disfavor from God. Like God is not smiling upon you. With life and death, you didn't have kids. Your, your tribe dies, your nation dies, your family dies. And women who did not have lots of children or any children were considered worthless. Not just in society's eyes, but in their own eyes. It's how they begin to saw, see themselves as worthless. One person commented on this, and they said, in those cultures, women were essentially forced into an idolatry of family and children. 
and idolatry of family and children. Now, we've talked about what idolatry is lots of times. What is an idol? An idol is any time we take anything, even a good thing, and turn it into an ultimate thing that we say, that is where I get my fulfillment. That is where I get my happiness. That's what makes my whole life have meaning. Anything other than Jesus himself that we put in that place, that becomes an idol. This could be a good thing. It could be marriage. But when you think you have to be married in order to live a fulfilled life, marriage has become an idol. It could be a degree or schooling. That, that is a great thing. It's a great thing. But when it becomes your means to happiness, that has become an idol. The thing about which you say, because I have that, I have meaning. Because this is in my life. I have purpose. Because this is who people see who I am. Therefore, I have everything together. Anything more than your relationship with God, that thing becomes an idol. Because that thing is your real hope. So in ancient societies, in this place and time, women were essentially pushed into a place where they made an idol out of children and family. You are nothing unless you have children and family. Now today, we say, that sounds terrible. It's, it's awful that those ancient cultures are so oppressive to women. And while that is true, we still live in a culture where we make idols for ourselves and for one another to tell everyone around us, you have to have this for your life to have meaning. You know, our culture can still be very oppressive. So I was reading uh, this article a little bit ago about this woman who fled to Iran, from Iran to Paris by way of America. She now works as a graphic artist. And so the person who wrote the article says, you left Iran for Paris and you escaped the oppressiveness of those religious institutions. And they're speaking of women who have to cover themselves if they want to go outside. Women are not allowed in public without a man. They're, they can't drive. And so she responds with this. It's a problem for women no matter what the society. In Muslim countries, they try to cover women. In America, they try to make them look like a piece of meat. Ooh, right? I mean, we think we're free. We're not idolatrous. You know, we're, we're okay. And yet people from other cultures see our idolatry. In collectivist cultures where family is everything, your status comes from, here's my children. Here is my family. You're nothing unless you have kids. But in an individualistic culture like ours today, where you find meaning and significance through competition, we come to women and men both, and we say, you have to be hot. You have to be slim. You have to, ha you have to be beautiful to be attractive. You have to have these things. That becomes the idol. Do you know you don't read a lot about eating disorders in ancient cultures? You know why? Because the oppression of women in those cultures was completely different. And in truth, there is no such thing as an unoppressive culture. And I'm not just talking about women, men and women, both. Every culture puts things in front of men and women, whether it's sexual things or how you look or the job you have or what you approve or don't approve. Older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. Even the, hey, let's let everyone do whatever they want to do, whatever you want to call yourself movements of our day, they are still oppressive, even though they will tell you they're not because they don't see their own oppressiveness. You typically don't see it when you are in the middle of it. If you don't validate somebody else for any bizarre thing they can think up, you're deemed unworthy. You're deemed less than. Every culture, every single one, puts things in front of everybody else and that aren't God, and they say, you must measure up to this. You must do this or you are nothing. If you don't identify with this, then you're a disgrace or you're not being true to yourself. And when we accept what culture says about our identity over what God says about our identity, it's going to destroy us every single time. 
If you build your life on having kids, you will crush your kids under your expectations. Or if you don't have them, you will be crushed because you don't have them. If you build your life on romance and love, oh, somebody loves me. Somebody has said I'm okay. Yes, that's so great. Well, you're going to end up crushing that person under your expectations. Because I, I do these weddings and sometimes couples say, we want to write our own vows. And I'm always like, hey, that's great, but let's do the standard vows first. And then you can say whatever you really want to say after that. But let's get the, the good stuff. In. Not that your stuff isn't good. Okay, so if you ever want to do your wedding, it's like, what do you mean my stuff's not good? That's not what I'm saying. Let's just get the stuff that really needs to be there. You know, for the rest of our lives, we're going to have them to hold better for worse. I know y'all want better, but worse comes. Uh, so, th and they start reading these things they write to each other. And I will tell you, probably a good 50% of them are like, you're my world. I was nothing till I met you. You're my universe. And I'm like going, go oh my goodness. I mean, I'm like this. Yeah, because I'm doing, there's pictures, right? So I'm like, but inside I'm going, oh my goodness, because you cannot worship another person. Another person will never fulfill you. And every time that person fails, which they will because they're human, it will destroy you inside. You'll begin to destroy your relationship because that person is not God. If you build your life on money and achievement, you are never going to have enough. You're always going to be seeking and never finding and never fulfilled. There is no such thing as an unoppressive culture. And the only way to escape the idol systems of our culture is by having God and his love be more important to our hearts and our lives than anything else. And when you look at Hannah weeping, this is why. Who is Hannah? She is a woman with a natural desire to have a child that has become an idolatrous thing. Old Testament scholar Robert Alter has a commentary on 1st and 2nd Samuel, and he points out this family's completely broken dynamics. He says, there is not a single place in all the Bible where a polygamous family is ever depicted as anything other than miserable. Now, today, some people will say, oh, the Bible condones polygamy. It doesn't. Every page you turn and every place you see it, polygamy comes about because man ran from God. Today, we have these things called polyamory. I'm going to get together and love whoever I want and as many people as I want to. And, and this is going to be so great. In those relationships, they become abusive. Most people end up becoming a part of that because they feel like I won't get love anywhere else unless I am simply just a part of this other thing. And God says this is destructive to people. The Bible does everything it can to possibly say polygamy is a horrible idea. It exploits, it destroys everybody. And so here you got Elkanah, the husband of these two women. He says to Hannah, I love you the best. I love you the best. And that's why I'm giving you this extra portion. And that infuriates Peninnah, who then does everything she can to hurt Hannah for her childlessness. They don't get mad at Elkanah, right? They get mad at each other. Elkanah, by favoring Hannah, destroys his other wife's heart and in turn makes Hannah's life miserable. Robert Alter says this, Peninnah represents the idolatrous hope of her society. I have children. You don't. I'm better than you. He says it's a sociological hope that is built on a trap. But then he says Elkanah represents the psychological hope. He's kind of well-meaning, but he says to Hannah, I love you. That should be more important than having children. He represents what individualistic modern societies offer to women. Don't build your identity on the children. Build your identity on being hot and having someone say that they love you. So what does Hannah do? And this is the great thing about Hannah's story. Hannah's sick of both of it. She is. First Samuel 1 Samuel 1.9, it says, and, the after, and they had eaten, after they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, the word for rose there doesn't just mean she stood up. 
This means she took action. She went to do something. And what does she do? She arises to pray to God. Sometimes people think, oh, prayer doesn't really do anything. It does. It does. She rejects the idols that were offered to her and went to focus on God himself, the God that cared for her. Real spirituality in our lives starts not just when you see the bad things that you do. It's when you see the good things that you've made ultimate things and lay them all at the foot of the cross. We go to God instead. And before we get to that prayer, let me just say this. There is nothing wrong with having children. There is nothing wrong with having a loving spouse. There's nothing wrong with money or success. But what I'm saying is, if that's where you find your identity, it is misplaced. Anything that is not God is an idol. Okay, so Hannah's first prayer. 1 Samuel 1, 11. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, when you first read that, you say, that sounds like bargaining. That sounds like a prayer. Like, well, what's happening here? Well, she is actually rejecting her societal slavery here because she first off acknowledges who God is. She says, O Lord of hosts. These are the words Yahweh Sabbath, which means that God's majesty, his infinity, she sees who he is. He is all sovereign and all powerful and he was great. And she says, remember, look upon the affliction. That's the word for misery of your servant. And Hannah in that statement assumes something about God that the broken heart of a rural, obscure woman matters to the Lord of all creation. And that's amazing. She remembers who God is. She takes the deepest needs of her heart and she pours them out to who God is, the reality of who he is. And this is the difference today between spirituality, right? Like in secular people, you have this idea of spirituality. Conservative people have an idea, but secular people, it's like you just want to spew it, just, just vomit all of the things inside of you out at that point. Conservative people say, no, no, you got to repress it. You got to hold it inside. Don't get too emotional because people get freaked out about that. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says it's neither one of those. What we do is we go to God and we process through it with him and we work through as we pour it out in front of him. And that's real prayer. We do this in the presence of God. We take the deepest parts of who we are and we lay it out in light of who he is. That is totally different than spewing or repressing. It's working through. And the petition is, if you give me a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall be used upon his head. And again, you might say, that sounds like horse training. If you trade horses, I guess. You know, it's, it's manipulative. It's like, you do this, you give me this, and I'll give you that. It's like, God, give me the winning lotto numbers, and I will give you half after taxes. You know, it's, yeah, how, yeah, you ever done that? God, oh, just this one time, quick pick in Jesus' name. Uh, no, right, no, okay. All right. Going into the ministry means that this kid would be a full-time priest. In those days, if you wanted to be a priest, you had to be a Levite from the tribe of Levi. And if you were from another tribe like Hannah and Elkanah, who were not Levites, and you wanted to go into full-time ministry, you would become a Nazarite. Now, how do, you, how do you become a Nazarite? No strong drink. Don't cut your hair. Set yourself apart from birth. That's what she's saying she's going to do. But a Nazarite is only going to be like a full-time assistant to the priest that's there. What'll happen throughout the course of Samuel's life is Eli, the high priest, is just a knucklehead. God removes him. His two sons are just, I'm not even gonna talk about this because it'd be a whole another sermon, but he gets them off the board and Samuel becomes the prophet in Israel and he leads them and speaks of God's goodness and of God's grace. It's like God removes everybody and takes this kid 
and uses him for his God's own glory. And it's amazing. And again, the two marks in that Nazarite, no strong drink, can't cut their hair. This is why she says that. Now, a Nazarite child, though, is of no help to the economy of the family. A Nazarite child doesn't take care of you in your old age because the child's away in ministry. A Nazarite child doesn't even give you emotional support because they're, they're at the temple. They're not at home. And when you're out in the marketplace with all the other women and all their kids, well, your kid's not with you. This is back in a time when your kid was away, they're away. No cell phones, no emails, no texts. Hannah makes this promise when all the cultural and emotional motivations for having children are gone. So then why does she want a child? If it's not cultural or emotional, you have to look at the theological reasons. In Genesis 12, God comes to this guy named Abraham, and he says, I'm going to save the world through your family. And the Israelites were first blessed in order to be a blessing. Now, that promise has been given to us as believers. If you believe in Jesus, anything God bless you with, God only blesses you so you would bless somebody else. God wants it to move outward from us. As we are blessed, we bless others. And so God says, I'm going to heal the world through this family. Now, the Israelites don't really understand all that that means. Abraham doesn't understand all that that means. But they knew that God was going to do something through their community, which leads to this belief out on the periphery where someone realized when they bore a child, they're participating with God in the salvation of the world. Now, obviously, that's not the main reason most women had children. It's not how Peninnah saw it. It was all about her. But but obviously, when you look at Hannah, something is starting to change in her because she's taking this theological reason and now she's making that the center. And it's kind of beautiful. One commentator points out that she is saying, all my life I want a child for me, but now I want a child for you. I want a child who can work in your mission. I want a child who can work in your ministry. Give me a son. I will give him to you, all of him. Now, she may have thought that her whole life she just wanted to be a mother. She just wanted to bring life. And I think here she starts to see that she does bring life simply by living for God in the world. And now she wants to bring his presence into the world to help bring salvation. And so she starts off wanting a child, for cultural, for emotional reasons, and then moves to a place after spending time with God, everything shifts, and his mission is what she wants. Now, I know what you're thinking. Aaron, how do you know that? You're reading way too much into this text. You tell us not to do it, and I do tell you not to do that. You tell us not to do it, so how, why do you think that? Well, I think that because this is not Hannah's only prayer. And what you see is after she prays this, she will wash her face, she will eat, her husband takes her home, they lie together, and God opens her womb. It does not say in the text that, oh, she prayed, she got pregnant, and then she got happy with inner peace, and then she ate, and then she stopped being depressed. She had no idea that she was going to get pregnant, but she trusted her life into God's hands after pouring herself out before him, and she goes home full. Why? Because she'd shifted her hope from herself to the mission of God. She becomes liberated from the cultural idol systems. And this prayer is not just for women and babies. This is for all of us. I mean, think about something as mundane as investing. If you're into investing, the real value is the mission of God in the world and the way that God blesses that so you can bless others. If you're into art, the real artistry in the end is God's mission in the world. Time with God can reset all of our goals to what fulfills us and recenters us on the mission of God. As, you know, by turning to God as the center, making money or art or having children can all be ways to glorify God, not ways of trying to find our significance and our security. We become free. 
So what happens in Hannah's life? Well, Hannah has a son, as I said, named Samuel. She and Elkanah release him to the ministry. He becomes one of the greatest prophets in Israel. He rises up at a time where there is great crisis. He leads his people to victory over their enemies. He saves them. And if Hannah really had not suffered, if she didn't spend time with God, she would have ever been crushed under these expectations. But instead, she came to trust the mission of God in her life. And then God does this amazing work. So let me jump through the second prayer here, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. And then we'll kind of bring this together with what I think we can learn from this. She says this, after they drop the child off at the temple. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What do you learn here from Hannah? Well, I think there's a, there's a few things, but we're going to really focus on one thing because God uses the suffering and sacrifice of Hannah to bring about salvation. And you might think, that's amazing. Look at her life. Look at her focus. Look where she went. I, I can't do that. I think you can. I think we all could because we have something that Hannah never had. We have the fullness of the good news of the gospel displayed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We have that. We get to see all that God was planning to do. We get to see the fulfillment of it. Hannah actually points in this prayer that God reverses things. You may think you're in a spot in your life, and I don't know the way out of this. I don't know. What God reverses things. The warriors now stumble. The stumblers are empowered. The hungry are filled. The full are empty. The barren are fertile. The fertile are barren. In verse 8, God takes the poor off the ash heap. The ash heap is the dump where you would just, it would always be on fire because they're always burning their garbage and the poorest of the poor live there to try and find something to survive on. And God raises them up to the, where the princes are. Now, just set that here for a second. And we fast forward, you know, centuries later, Jesus comes. All right, when Jesus is crucified, he is led outside of Jerusalem to be executed, most likely overlooking an ash heap. Jesus is going to die. He will die in disgrace because of this crucifixion. It's the most humiliating death possible. And people mocked him, just like they mocked Hannah. That can't be the Messiah. He can't be blessed by God. He can't be God's anointed. Because when they looked at the forerunners of the Messiah, they looked at the Samuels and the Davids and the Gideons and the Solomons, the, these warriors who brought salvation of being strong and getting glory. But that salvation ended up being political and social. Jesus comes. That can't be the Messiah. He looks weak. God would certainly not let him be disgraced and crucified. And I was reading this whole article about this. It set me on the trajectory for this message. But they pointed out many times they wouldn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah is because they were only looking at the men who were the forerunners of Jesus and not the women. If you read the scriptures, you will see over and over God gives a foretaste of the real gospel and the work of Jesus in the fact that he continually brought his salvation to the world through barren, rejected, and unwanted women. 
Abraham, the guy that uh, God brings that promise to in Genesis 12. He has a wife named Sarah. She is old. She is barren. They have, they have a maid named Hagar who is very fertile. And yet God will bring the royal messianic line through Sarah. Later, you will have Abraham's grandson, Jacob. He loves this girl named Rachel. And yet he is tricked into marrying a girl named Leah, who nobody liked. And Leah never felt loved because he, uh, Jacob only wanted Rachel. And yet God brings the tribe of Judah through Leah, an unwanted woman. A couple weeks ago, we talked about this woman named Tamar who was unwanted. You talk about this woman named Ruth from a whole culture that started with incest. And then you have Bathsheba. And here Samuel is born to a suffering, disgraced woman. But through the suffering and disgrace of Hannah, salvation eventually comes. So I was reading this whole article that said about this, and the author said this. If you look at the four mothers, you would have known Isaiah was talking about the Messiah when he said, the one who comes to save will suffer disgrace and will be crushed for our iniquities. Jesus, crucified on the ash heap. He experiences the disgrace and the punishment and divine justice that we deserve because our sins, because our disgrace was placed upon him. And then he gives, his, he gives us his righteousness through his weakness or looking weakness. We are then saved. And the author said this, you could see it in Hannah if you were looking at Hannah and not Samuel. Not that you don't look at Samuel. I mean, Samuel did some amazing things, but we tend to overlook Hannah. I've heard sermon after sermon on Samuel and this whole story, and the story focuses on Samuel. It doesn't focus on Hannah because no one's looking at her. Hannah didn't know how God was going to use her suffering to bring about salvation, but she still trusted God, and she spoke to him honestly, and she placed her life in his hands. And God, through prayer, reverses how Hannah sees the world. And that's the beauty of what the gospel brings to us. When we speak, when we pray to God himself in honesty, because on the cross, the reversal happens. My sin for his righteousness, my death for his life. God brings us life out of the death of Christ. Hannah was right to reject the building of her life around her desires or her husband's love. Why? Because people aren't God. They're not. Cultures don't save. Jesus is the one who saves. And Hannah gets a clear picture of what the gospel is in her prayer to God. Just I think, like I think I and you could get a clear picture of who God is when we understand what God did in the work of Hannah's life. When you look at all of those four mothers and what God brought about in their lives, it is simply amazing the work that God does. And I think as we start a brand new year, we could take, maybe take a step back in our lives and maybe take a look at the things that we are running after, the things that we think are going to give us uh, all that we think we need. That'll make me feel better if I just got this this year, if I just finally stayed with that New Year's resolution and worked out more than four days after I said I would. You know, whatever it is, and realize all those things can be good, but they're not ultimate things. And what we need to do in our lives is simply lay them before Christ and trust Him for the things that He has said, for the things that He has done, that our salvation comes from Him. And this is why every week we come to this place of communion. Because communion is the place to remember that Jesus was crucified for us, that we had broken relationship with God, that we had run away, and there's no way for us to restore that relationship. So God himself comes in the person of Christ, and he dies for our sins and rises from the grave. And that is why we break the cracker, because the cracker, as we break it, reminds us that it was Christ's body who was broken. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, it reminds us that it was his blood that was shed, so that we get to be a people who live in restored relationship with God. 
And it is simply humbling because of how good God is. And is it amazing that he would love us the way that he does? And so this morning, I would invite you to come and take a meeting. We don't pass it throughout the room. You actually have to get up and take communion because it's a response to what God has done. If you need prayer, maybe you, your life right now, you just realized is full of idols. And it's like, I don't know how to get around these things. I've made these things the center of my life. And if you want someone to pray with you about that, right across the way in the lounge, you can go during music, you can go after service, grab someone. We would love to pray with you and talk with you. I'm not going to judge you about that because we're all people who put idols in our lives and center ourselves on them. And it's God who comes and breaks those chains when we realize the goodness of who he is and what he has done. We are also a church who, you know, we, we don't pass an offering plate. There's offering boxes on the side wall. You can give online, but we don't pass a plate because just like communion, just like prayer, just like singing, we believe that how we give is a response to what God is doing in us. And that is why we don't pass a plate. We want you to be able to say, God, you've been so generous with me, so I believe I should be generous like you have first been. And that's why we give the way that we do here. Uh, I would encourage you to maybe take those four questions on those sermon notes and maybe work through those a little bit. Maybe with some friends, sit down and talk about what idols you might even have in your life right now. And it's difficult. It really is to be honest enough to talk about the things that we put our hope in other than Christ. And yet it can be freeing and liberating to acknowledge it and then to see who God himself actually is and how he has brought us off the ash heap of our own idolatry and brought us back into relationship with him. So let's be a people who understand the great gift of Christ and how he has brought us into relationship with him because of what we see in Hannah's life. She's a a great example to us of how we go and pour ourselves out to him because he is the one who is good and he cares about us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would continue to remind us of your goodness and of your grace. Because I think it is so easy at times to get the focus of ourselves away from what you have done to rescue us and put it all upon ourselves. Especially when you start a new year and it seems like every beginning of every new year, we just come up with all these resolutions. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And if I do these things, then therefore I will be a better person. And maybe God will love me more. But God, we understand that you cannot love us more than you already do. You came to rescue and save us, knowing everything about us, knowing our lost state. And I ask the reality of that will begin to break all the chains that bind us to all of our idols, all the things that we keep trying to find our worth and value in. And our walls will begin to become broken down And the reality of who you are will be what we build our lives upon. Not upon ourselves. Not upon how our idols make us feel when we measure up. But upon who you are and what you've done. I ask that we, like Hannah, would come and pour ourselves out in honesty. That it's not just spewing and we're not trying to repress everything, but we are literally walking through those things with you. Because we know that the creator of the entire universe cares about us, where we are. And I ask that just like Hannah, in that understanding, we would get up 
and we would wash our face and we would eat with joy and gladness and step out into this world with a renewed vision of who you call us to be on your mission with your strength and your love given to us that we have been so blessed by and that we would in turn bless others with it as well. We ask it in your son's good name. Amen. As we drop these curtains, just take a moment and ask the hard question, maybe during this first song. God, what are my idols? What have I placed in my life to give me purpose and meaning and hope? What is that? And listen. Listen. And as he reveals that, lay that in front of him. It doesn't mean that tomorrow it's, it's all going to be better. You're gonna, not going to have to struggle with that thing anymore. You may struggle with it the rest of your life. But one of the best things we can do is to get real about what those things are. So we can see when we are placing our hope into something that isn't Christ. Because then we will grow. Then there'll be a joy that moves beyond our despair. And it'll be a deep and abiding joy that steps into every part of our life. So God, show me my idols. And then lay those before him as you come and take communion. Sing some songs with us. Worship who he is, as in the metaphorically washing your face and eating and standing up to worship who he is.